Welcome to the Growth Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. Every week, I talk to authors, subject matter experts, and millionaire mentors to share the lessons that will help you and me be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Today, I had a transformative conversation with Carla Miller, a leadership coach and best-selling author who works with women to develop their careers and their confidence. Carla is the author of Closing the Influence Gap, a practical guide for women leaders who want to be heard, which empowers women to successfully navigate the workplace and to learn to lead their way. Enjoy the conversation. Good morning, Carla. Welcome to the Growth Guide. Before we dive into your book, would you like to share with our audience a brief bio about yourself so that they know who you are, and then we'll start the conversation with your book? Absolutely. Thank you. So I'm a women's leadership and confidence coach. My background is in the charity sector, the nonprofit sector, you would call it over there, where I led teams for many, many years and raised about £20 million for good causes. I found myself in leadership positions quite young. By 29, I was a director and sometimes found it hard to get my voice heard when surrounded by people who are a lot older than me and by lots of men as well. And I learned to build my confidence. I learned to influence effectively. And when I later became a coach, I started sharing these tools and techniques with other women and discovering that actually it wasn't just me that was experiencing those issues and these techniques were helpful. So I've been coaching women now for about 14 years. And the book really exists to help the versions of me that were out there when I was younger in my first management role, my first director role, my first chief exec role and help other people um, avoid some of the pitfalls that I fell into. And so the book we're talking about is Closing the Influence Gap, a practical guide for women leaders who want to be heard. And where I'd love to start with that is in the beginning, in the introduction, you talk about the idea that women in a senior leadership position are twice as likely to be the only one or the only woman at their level in the workplace. And women of color are often and only in two ways and even more likely to be on the end of disrespectful behavior, which is why you want them to know two things. You're not alone. You don't need fixing. And that's what we're going to be talking about in our conversation today. Can you share with the listeners what that means for you? Absolutely. So I think There's lots of criticism out there about offering confidence and leadership support to women because there's the assumption that, well, women need fixing or they're broken. And actually, we shouldn't be fixing the women. We should be fixing the system. And I sort of hold both views at the same time in that we absolutely need to be fixing the system. The world of work was designed by men for men. And it was the world of work as we know it was designed back in the 50s, basically. And many of them had a housewife at home doing the child rearing and everything else to do with life as well. And there have been some substantial changes, but it's still a place where women often don't feel like they belong, particularly when we're the only woman in the room. And so we do face a bit additional barriers to success. 
And even when we get a seat at the table, it's harder for us to get our voice heard. And so the book aims to overcome that and help women recognize that they don't need fixing. Like you say, they're not broken, but gender bias has impacted our confidence. It's impacted our self-belief. And then that makes it harder to speak up. So I believe we absolutely need to change the system. And and it's really, really important to engage men in that as well. This isn't something men are doing to women. We all um, participate in gender bias. It's a societal issue. And I want to help women believe in themselves again and understand that they can lead their way. And the fact that they don't always get their voice heard doesn't mean that they're not good enough. And I think that's where we go in our heads. We don't get our voice heard. We get interrupted. Someone makes our point that we've just made and they get all the credit for it. And we start to think, well, there must be something wrong with me because they're not taking me seriously. I must just have to work harder. I have to be more. I have to be better. And actually, that's not the case at all. And that's what I would really love all women to understand, because I think it's really empowering to understand that. So before we dive into strategies and tactics and tools that people can use, the first thing you talk about us needing to work on, and you mentioned some of them there, our own mindsets and beliefs to then empower us to take the next step. So the first part is working on the inner work for ourselves. Can you talk about that at a high level? And then we'll dive into a couple of the specific ones. Yes. So it can be hard to get others to see you as a leader if you're set there doubting yourself, if you're worried about speaking up, if you're not completely sure that you're right, or if you're caveating some of the things you're saying by saying, I'm not sure, but, or correct me if I'm wrong. So it shows up in various ways, the self-doubt that we experience. I tend to talk about imposter feelings rather than imposter syndrome because no one wants to get labeled with a syndrome and they're not permanent things for most of us. They come and go, but they do hold us back because they stop us speaking up. They stop us being as confident. They stop us pushing for what we know is right and owning our expertise. So one of the things I find it's really helpful to do with people is help to recognize that we all have beliefs that we've adopted through life to help us make sense of life. Beliefs like I have to be perfect all the time, or I have to be as 100% right in order to speak up, or I have to say yes to everything that people ask me. So what the book helps you to do in that first part is to reframe some of those beliefs, to question them and say, is that true? Is it always true? And is it serving me? And if it's not serving me, how do I want to feel about this? And what new belief could I create? We also look at um, your inner critic. So that negative mental chatter that you have in your head, coaches, we like to call it your inner critic. You might have heard it called a gremlin or a saboteur. But I find it's really helpful to personalize that as well so that you can then recognize, oh, that thought I'm having might not be true, might not be helpful. And it's just my inner critic getting really vocal because I'm out of my comfort zone at the moment. And then the final thing we do as part of the core bit of seeing yourself as a leader is help you to tune into what I call your inner leader, but that calm, wise, confident part of yourself. And we've all got it. We just can't access it quite as quickly as we can access that inner critic. So the book teaches you to do that. And then the other thing it looks at in that section is some of the behaviors that come from those beliefs. So working to the point of burnout, for example, or finding it challenging to say no, I see a lot of that. I mean, burnout is much more common in women than men, particularly over the last few years. Here in the UK, we had a lot of lockdowns and a lot of homeschooling. 
And much of the burden of that fell to women. Um, and I think that's really exacerbated that burnout. But it's also due to this idea that, oh, I just, if I just work harder, then I'll be recognized and then I feel good enough. So we address a lot of that in that first section. Okay, let's dive into it. Where I'd love to start is when it comes to imposter feelings, you talk about recognizing the inner critic and working with our inner critic. Can we start with that as part of the imposter feelings to help people work their way through reducing the imposter feeling? Yes. So I think there's a lot of crossover between your inner critic and imposter feelings. What we're talking about as a whole really is is self-doubt. And there's an analogy I love for this, uh, which comes from Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Um, and she also wrote Big Magic, which is the book that this idea comes from, where she basically says when she's writing a book, she's on a road trip. And next to her in the front seat is creativity, because when you're writing a book, you need creativity. But she also recognizes that part of the journey of writing a book is fear. And so she recognizes fear is on that journey too. And she says to fear, okay, fear, my friend, you are welcome in the car, on the road trip. I accept that you're here, but you are not in charge of the radio. You are not giving directions, no backseat driving, and you're not allowed to drive. And that works really well when it comes to imposter feelings, your inner critic. And fear is another word for that. For some people, it comes up as fear. For some, it's worry. For some, it's self-doubt. Some of us have multiple inner critics. Some of us just have one that we can identify. But we don't want to get rid of it altogether. It's just part of the human experience. We don't need to beat ourselves up for experiencing it. And I think that happens a lot. I speak to women on the phone and they say, I really want to work with you, but I don't know if you're going to be able to help me because my inner critic is super, super loud. And I say to them, you're literally the fifth person that said that this week. We all believe our inner critics are super loud. And that's why I love getting groups of women together because we're, we're constantly comparing our messy insides to everybody else's completely sorted outsides. And when you have those safe conversations, you realize, oh, that person that I really respect and admire, who's got it all together, their, their inside is just as messy as me. They experience that self-doubt as well. So for me, it's exactly that. It's re- recognizing your inner critic part of your journey through life. And that's okay. But what we don't want is for them to be doing the driving. We want to be able to recognize, oh, it's getting really vocal back there, trying to take control of the steering wheel or change the, the um, radio channel. Actually, I don't want it to do that. And so we put it in the back seat. And for me, in my head, I visualize my inner critic and I basically say, thanks, but I've got this. And I, and I choose to put those thoughts aside quite quickly and move on. In some of the things you talked about, you called it turning down the volume on your inner critic. We're putting a name to it, a voice, a personality, something that it would be easier to silence. Is that? That's right. Because when, at the moment you hear all this negative chatter and you hear it in your own voice and we believe our thoughts, we believe all our thoughts are true, most of us particularly when we're hearing them in our own voice. And so if we can assign it a bit of a personality, then we can start to differentiate those thoughts from the other more helpful thoughts we're having. And it just creates that pause, that space where we can make that choice as to, right, do I want to listen to that or do I not want to? So personifying it is a really nice way to do it. Um, You could also just 
picture turning the volume down. So that's why I talk about turning the volume down, because you could imagine the voice just getting smaller and smaller, quieter and quieter and quieter. Or if you visualize it, you can imagine them getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the idea is that rather than your inner critic being a scary thing, which I think for some people it can be, instead it becomes a bit of a laughable thing. So at the moment, I have a bit of an inner critic called Paranoid Pandora, where suddenly I see something or notice something about my body and I think, oh, there's something seriously wrong with me. And now what I do is I recognize, oh, hang on, it's Paranoid Pandora there. And Pandora wants to go to Google and open Pandora's box, but we are not allowing that. We're recognizing... (laughs) Actually, that's just part of what's going on in my head at the moment. And I recognize it quickly. And then I choose to switch my thoughts to something reassuring that makes me feel better, which in my case is my the face of my cute little five-year-old boy always puts a smile on my face and distracts me from those more negative thoughts. So that's how it can work in practice. And Carla, do you ever use as well in CBT, they'll have the idea of thought auditing? and writing down those negative thoughts and then challenging them with more logical alternatives. Uh, A guest recently had an acronym for it that I'm I'm trying to cement into my brain, so I'm going to be using it more and more, is T, which over in England uh, you can appreciate, and that's what's the thought? Is there any evidence to support it? What's an alternative thought? I love that. That's a really great shortened version. I encourage people to write down, when they first identify their inner critic, I encourage them to write down what their inner critic is saying. So that's that first step is recognizing, oh, my inner critic's actually quite vocal. It's actually taking over quite a lot of my thoughts. And then we put them through a thought reframing process. But actually, I love the T because it's just quick and easy to remember. And it's exactly that. It's basically, how true is this thought? Is it serving me? And then I say to people, how do you want to feel about this topic? And what thought would enable you to feel that? So uh, I think I might swap that for the tea, actually. I really like how simple that is. Yes, you're right. We do like tea over here. And is it serving me? That's such an important point. A lot of people don't realize a lot of that inner critic in us, at some point in our life, it was serving us. Maybe when we were seven, that was serving us and that voice was helping keep us safe. And now that we're adults, it may not be serving us. So that's such a powerful question. Is it serving me? And if it was serving me, how might it sound differently? I love that reframing, Carla. And then if we contrast that with the inner leader, so we want to turn the volume down on the inner critic. We want to turn the volume up on the inner leader. What does the inner leader look like? And why don't I have that voice inside me? How do I get that one? So one way we do it is to access it through a visualization, basically, because again, visualizations can be really powerful, but it's basically the calm, confident version of you. It's your intuition is another word for it. And we just put a visual to that. So I encourage people when they're going into meetings, for example, imagine leaving your inner critic outside the front door because our inner critics can get very vocal in meetings. And instead, stepping into your inner leader. So in the book, there's a visualization for it. Another shortcut for that is also to think, well, when have I been in that state of flow where I've been calm, confident, I've known what I've been doing? And again, you can use an NLP type technique for that where you can visualize that and turn up the brightness of that experience, turn up the emotion of that experience. And find some way that enables you to tap into that. 
So I've got clients that have got images that remind them of their inner critic or remind them of a a period of life when they did feel really confident and really calm and really in control. And just tuning into that changes how your nervous system feels. It changes your body language. And you can just go into meetings, onto calls, feeling more grounded and believing in yourself more. It's really about learning to trust yourself. And it's a visualization tool that enables you to do that. And we're going to talk about that even as part of pre-meeting routines later, which I I loved your methods for pre-meeting routines that we're going to get to. In the intro, you talked a little bit about the idea of burnout and how that's been more challenging for women over the last three years of COVID. I've definitely seen that with the, we call it the invisible workload and how much more that increased for them during the pandemic with homeschooling and everybody living at home. So that was very visible. And even yourself, early in your career, you got caught in the trap of linking your value as a person to the quality and quantity of your work which is an absolute recipe for disaster until your coach asked you two good questions. What would happen if you didn't try to be perfect at everything? And what would happen if you didn't give 110% over time? So you've used those two questions to drive a way to break your habit of a lifetime of overachieving. Can you take us through what the questions did for you and how you recommend someone else get out of that habit because you've done more work and have your own recommendations on top of what your coach gave you back on your journey. Yes. So I remember being asked those questions by my coach and we were sitting in a cafe having lunch and I actually started hyperventilating at just the idea of not trying to be perfect to everything and not trying to over deliver all the time, because it had been my default through life. I don't know if it's an older child thing, um, but I know that I have a lot of clients that experience that same thing, where basically we're, we're trying to prove our value to ourselves and everyone around us. And the more challenging the roles we go into, the more we're feeling that need to prove that we belong, to prove that we're good enough. And even when other people are telling us we are, we still don't necessarily feel like we are. So. I was terrified of making mistakes. And so I felt like I needed to be in control of lots of things. I'm sure it made me quite difficult to work for because I think I'm a really relaxed person, but actually working for someone who wants to be in control all the time is not very relaxing. And I recognized at that point that actually being perfect, trying to be perfect wasn't serving me. And actually being perfect wasn't even the right thing to aim for. A, because we learn from our mistakes. But also at the time, this is really dating myself, but um, Desperate Housewives was on television at the time. And it was early on in Desperate Housewives. And Brie Vanderkamp was, I don't think she'd gone completely insane at that point, but she was perfect. She was like a Stepford wife. And she was the least likable character in the program. And I realized I was trying to be like her and I didn't want to be like her. And And for me, that really helped me understand actually my imperfections are what make me likable and even lovable and recognizing and accepting those. And for me, that was a a major breakthrough. 
For my clients, what I help them identify is what's that story you're telling yourself? Is it that you need to be perfect? Is it that you need more experience? We all have these unhelpful stories. And exactly like you just said, taking them through what you've called the T tea, the tea process is a really, really effective way to do that. And I think in terms of the giving 110%, my coach had a really helpful analogy for that as well, which was if you were a car, and this is driving stick, I don't know if many of you drive stick over there in the UK, we all, we call them manual cars and we pretty much all still drive them. In a car, you wouldn't expect it to go in fifth gear, in the top gear all the time. You would completely destroy the car. And that's what I was trying to do. I would literally, and I still notice myself doing it sometimes now, foot down flat on the accelerator all the time and wondering why eventually I feel like I'm going to break down. And so just recognizing that it's okay. It's good to be able to switch into fifth gear, but it's okay to be in third gear. It's even okay to stop sometimes and have a rest. That It's a marathon, not a sprint. And I think it's really useful to know that, to recognize that, to find role models who are doing that. Over here, we've got a lot more of the four-day week happening, which is fantastic. I'm really seeing that actually people are more productive and getting more done when they're working four days rather than five days, you know, that really aligns with this way of thinking. So I think we need to do two things. We need the practical things in place that help us to slow down. But first, we need to work on that mindset and ask, what's driving me to work so hard? What is the thinking when I'm in that state of panic of, oh, actually, I must do more. I can't stop. I can't switch off. What's the thinking behind that? And that's where coaching can come in super handy to help you identify that. It's really hard sometimes to identify your own limiting beliefs or unhelpful thoughts, because to you, they're just facts about the world and life that you think are completely true. And so part of that, and we've already talked about this a bit and had a bit of a conversation about it, is part of what's both driving that the over-delivering, the over-achieving, and the inner critic slash imposter feelings are the idea of limiting beliefs and negative thoughts. And you have your own framework for reframing them. Can you take the listeners through the steps in your framework and, and we can share that with them? Absolutely. So the first one is to just ask yourself the question, is it true? And then ask the question, is it really true? So is it true in all circumstances? Is it true 100% of the time? Has there ever been a time when it wasn't true? So we're trying to find really a chink in the armor of that belief. And then help you understand the consequences of holding on to that belief. So what is it costing you? So questions like, how does it make you feel and act? when you think that thought. And that can be really sobering to recognize, oh, actually, it's making me feel really terrible about myself, or it's making me play it small rather than be noticed by other people. And then you say, how do you want to feel? How would you want to show up differently? And then finally, what new belief would you like to create around that? And then embedding that belief, which one of the best ways to do that is think, well, if I believed this, because your brain doesn't believe it yet, it's new, If I believe this, what action would I take and start by taking that action? So in the same way as confidence, sometimes we don't feel the confidence before we take the action. We take the action, then we feel the confidence. We can do that with a new belief as well. So we can think, well, what is the step I would take if I truly believed this new belief? Um, 
Affirmations are also really, really helpful. We have so many thoughts. So we have somewhere between 60 and 90,000 thoughts a day. Studies seem to vary. We know a lot of them are repetitive. We think a lot of them are negative, but I haven't seen a specific study on what percentage are negative. But we've got a lot of these repeating negative thoughts going around our heads every day. So just coming up with a new belief is not going to replace something that's building a pathway through your brain, a neural pathway for decades. So we want to repeat them. So you might, for example, you might write them down multiple times every day. I have a two minute timer on my toothbrush and I find it so boring that two minutes. So I do affirmations in my head during that time. I know someone like Tony Robbins likes to say it out loud into the mirror. I I don't know many British women that would stand in front of the mirror and repeat their affirmations to themselves. Um, So we like the the toothbrushing side of things or post-it notes if you're working from home is a really nice way to do it as well. Yeah, I like that idea. And I love that reframing method. One of the interesting things my coach told me back in the day when I was working with him, he took me through the idea of when you want to change a behavior. At first, it's an undesired behavior that's unconscious. Step one is making it an undesired behavior that's conscious, then a desired behavior that's conscious, and then finally over time, to your point about rewiring, takes the reps. Eventually it becomes a desired behavior that is unconscious, and we have to work our way on every single one of them all the way through that square. So now we've talked a bit about the limiting beliefs, imposter feelings, the inner critic, and and we've worked on our mindset and our belief systems. The next step you talk about is being seen as a leader by others. And so what does it take for us to be seen as a leader at a high level? And then we'll start diving in and playing with some of the details of that one, Carla. So for me, a lot of this is about stepping into the authority that comes with your job title. So society trains women to be really comfortable with responsibility, taking responsibility for things putting other people's needs before our own, people pleasing, all of that, saying yes to everything, all of that side of things. And much of that doesn't go that well with stepping into a a leadership role where you're having to ask people to do things, for example. And society doesn't train us to be comfortable with authority. And in fact, many people still are uncomfortable with authority. There's a fantastic book. So my book is mainly about how do women deal with this? There's a fantastic book on the issue of gender bias called The Authority Gap by Marianne Seagar. And she gives lots of examples in that of how she's interviewed women in some of the top positions in the world. And they're still being challenged by many levels below them, challenged as to whether they're right or wrong because their authority isn't being respected. So there's a lot of foundation there for why women don't claim the authority that goes with their job title. But I encourage people to do that. We may not naturally have gravitas or authority, but actually, as well as taking on the responsibility that comes with your job role, you need to claim the authority that comes with it too. And so that might look like setting really clear expectations, holding people to those expectations, setting and holding boundaries. And I see a lot of people do the first bit or we'll set our expectations, but then people will let us down or not do the task that they've been delegated. And we go, oh, okay, you had other priorities. That's fine. I'll do it then. And we train people to keep doing that. So so that's one of the core things, stepping into the authority that comes with your role. Another is being really intentional about what kind of leader do you want to be? Because often, and this isn't just a women thing at all, we, we fall into managing and leading and we 
We look at the people around us and think, oh, maybe we should be leading like them, but we don't take the time to think, what kind of leader do I want to be? And I believe that if we're intentional about how we show up, that acts as a filter um, that encourages other people to see us in that way. And we can talk about that. I call it your personal leadership brand. And then finally, I've got a meeting toolkit in there, which helps you to communicate powerfully in meetings, communicate like a leader and not, for example, use lots of qualifying statements as many women in the workplace do. And again, we could talk about why we do that. (laughs) Yeah, let's start there because that can be an absolute deal killer that I see in a lot of young leaders, especially women that I try to work with to say, don't eliminate these words from your vocabulary. Don't use them in meetings. You're undermining your authority. And that's your idea of power words. So I definitely want to spend some time there. And as well as you have some questions that you ask people to think about to determine their own personal leadership brand, which I think is very, very relevant and would love to spend time on that. And in the way you described it, choosing how you want to show up as a leader and being intentional about it. Because when we see that vision of this is the leader I want to be, then we can ask ourselves, how would that leader act? And that's how I'm going to behave. So yeah, let's dive into your personal leadership brand and follow that up with power words. Okay, fantastic. So your personal leadership brand, there's a process to it. And it's a pretty simple process. It's worth grabbing a pen and paper and spending some time doing it. But the questions you can ask yourself, the first one is to kind of get your ideas flowing is what leaders do I admire? And what are the leadership traits that I admire about them? Because I think we do spend a lot of time thinking, well, that leader's fantastic, but actually they're really extroverted and I'm introverted or vice versa. And comparing ourselves, When in fact, we can think, well, actually, I admire that person, but specifically what I admire is how they make someone feel or how they communicate or how they always deliver. So it's worth asking yourself that question. And what I encourage people to do with this exercise is have a piece of paper. So don't make your writing huge and just jot down all the words and phrases that come to you in answer to these different questions. And that will help us create our power words at the end or our personal leadership brand. So that's the first question. The second question is just off the top of your head. What kind of leader do you want to be? How, what impact do you want to have on others? How would you like people to describe you? Because what I should have started by saying is your personal brand is people's lived experience of you. It's essentially how people would describe you. So it's how maybe your team members describe your management style, what your peers think of you, how your manager describes you when they're talking about you in the organization what your chief exec thinks your potential is within the organization. All of that builds up to be your personal brand. And probably different people might be having different experiences of you. And we're all going through our days, probably reacting as much as we're responding. So not being as intentional as we could be about how we show up. So thinking about what kind of leader do I want to be? Putting some headspace into, go for a walk and just ponder that question. Then From there, we think about, well, what do you uniquely bring and what's important to you? So we look at things like values. If you've done any work on your values before, you might already know your work values, but maybe it's about collaboration. Maybe it's about success. Maybe it's about status. Maybe it's about empathy. We all have different values, but thinking what values are most important to me and popping that down on the page as well. 
And then we look at, well, in terms of what you uniquely bring, what strengths do you bring? Because we don't want you to be a leader like someone else. Actually, this is about how your workplace needs you to be the best version of you. They need you to be more you. And I'm not talking about completely unedited. No one needs to sharpen the workplace completely unedited. But I'm talking about owning what you're good at rather than trying to fit yourself into the box that you think leadership should be. So thinking about your strengths, it might be things you've had feedback from. It might be things that you really enjoy. There's a model, and I don't think I put it in the book because it doesn't belong to me, but there's a model called The Zone of Genius by Gay Hendricks. Have you ever come across that one? I've come across Zone of Genius a fair amount of time on Twitter. There's a writer, Sahil Bloom, who uses Zone of Genius fairly regularly. So the model that I'm referring to, and there may well be a crossover between the two, is by Gay Hendricks, who wrote a great book called The Big Leap, which is a fantastic personal development book. And it was aimed at entrepreneurs. And it said, basically, you could put the tasks that you do into one of four boxes. There's your zone of incompetence, the things that you're really not very good at and that absolutely drain your energy. Then there's your zone of competence. So these are the things that you're decent at, you're probably pretty average at. Um, They don't drain your energy, but they don't give you any energy. Then there's your zone of excellence, which are the things you're really good at. They do energize you. And the zone of genius is almost like the top five or 10% of your zone of excellence. They're the things that come so naturally to you that you probably undervalue them, but actually they're very, very effective and very valuable. And it might be you've received feedback on them. It might be that's the bit of your job you enjoy the most. It might be that's the thing you do for free because it's so rewarding or you just feel really in flow when you do it. So I keep people through an exercise when we do this in person, helping them identify their zone of genius. And actually with women, I help them to own it as well. The first time I had a group of women in a room, we did this exercise. There's about 20 of them. And I said, now stand up and share your zone of genius with us. So stand up and say, I am excellent at X or I am brilliant at X. Of 20, I think two managed to do that. The rest of them were like, well, someone once told me this, or my line manager says, or I think I might sometimes be okay at this. Or people felt very, very uncomfortable owning their strengths. And I would put good money on the fact if you had had a room full of men doing that, they would have felt a lot more comfortable owning those strengths. Because again, society does not really celebrate women owning their strengths and confidently saying what they're good at. It can be seen as quite threatening, as too strong. We have taken those messages on board from when we've been young children. And things are changing, but they're not changing quickly enough. And just like you said earlier, many of our thoughts are developed when we're children. Our inner critic develops when we're young, and, and that way of thinking often stays with us. So going back to the model, identify your zone of genius, really own the things that you are uniquely good at. And you don't have to be the world's best at them. You just have to be really good at them and really enjoy doing them. Then the third part is recognizing your leadership style doesn't operate in a vacuum. I've seen people move from one organization to another and they've been successful at organization A, they move to organization B with a different culture and it's really not going down very well at all, and they're unable to adapt. And so this is the bit about adapting to the organization. So look at your priorities over the next six months and think, in order to achieve those priorities, what leadership traits do I need to have? And what do my team need from me as a leader? 
And then also, if you're looking to develop within your organization, think, what does my organization value in its leaders? Because in one organization, being collaborative could be the best thing you could be. In another organization, it's much more competitive and being collaborative is seen as a sign of weakness. So you've really got to operate within the culture that you are sat within. So that's what we do to gather your list of words. Then you've got a list of words on the page. I usually play some nice music and you highlight the ones that really leap out at you, ideally picking a few from the different sections of the page so that we're bringing in all those different questions we asked. Then from there, let's say you've got eight to 10 words. We want to refine that into three words or phrases. Now I say three because we want this to be memorable. Your personal brand is not a statement that you're ever going to share with anybody else. This is just for you. So we want them to be things you can keep front of mind. And it might be that you look at some of those words and go, well, actually, there's one word or one phrase that sums them up. For me, one of them, I was a change maker. I like to make an impact. I like to collaborate and bring people on a journey and vision and positive force of nature was one of my phrases. It was basically what I wanted to be, someone who created change, but in a really positive way. So you end up with these phrases. Ones I quite often have at the moment are inspiring and insightful and integrity. Like Those are the three things that if I wanted people to describe me afterwards, I would tick those boxes because that's what's important to me. So you've got your power words, your three phrases. And the idea is that they basically act as a subconscious filter for your communication. So let's say one of yours was to be more strategic. You wanted to be seen as a strategic leader. When you're in a meeting, instead of diving into the detail, your head's going, oh, how can I be more strategic about this? What's the strategic question I could ask here? Now, it sounds ridiculously simple, but I have so many clients come back to me and say, I'm now being described with those words and I haven't actually vocalized them very much at all, but people are now describing me like that because I am intentionally showing up like that. And so for me, that's the power of focus intention. It's really simple. I just made it up one day, tried it with a few people and it worked really well. And now it's just worked really, really well with hundreds and hundreds of people. So um, simple, but powerful, I think. I can see you thinking there, Clint. Well, it ties to the, you know, we often talk about this idea that our feelings become thoughts, thoughts become words, words become actions, actions become habits. That's how we get known. In your short circuit, or not short circuiting it, What you're doing is you're using that in a powerful, intentional way to say, if that does happen, why don't we choose those words so that we become what we want and we're seen how we want to be seen? So we're using the words become actions, become how we're seen. And choosing the words ourselves and saying, this is how I'm going to be seen. It just seems so powerful and such a great cheat code to become the person we want to be. Absolutely. And I think if we want to show up differently, it's got to start with identity, hasn't it? And that's why you go through this whole process as well, to really start to own that about yourself and recognize it. Because we know that if you want to change habits, you want to adopt the identity of someone who has those habits. So I would love to be healthier, for example. And when I go running, I say to myself in my head lots of times, I am a runner, as opposed to saying to my head, this is really, really hard work. I'd like to stop now and I'm going to have some chocolate afterwards to make up for it. 
I adopt that identity. And so it's that same way of thinking, basically. You're conscious about your identity and you show up differently. And when we show up differently, people respond differently as well. I had one client who was sent on my Influence and Impact course by someone who said, you're very much like a manager, but you're not much of a leader. And within three months, she was being celebrated in the organization as a leader. And at her next review, they were like, there's nothing we can add here on leadership. You're just doing fantastically. And she had been an amazing student in my course, but she really embodied, how do I want to show up and be perceived and put that into action? And it had radically changed how she showed up and also how people perceived her. It works for interviews as well. So I encourage people going into an interview to think, how do I want them to describe me when I leave the room? So that bit, if you've been on an interview panel, you know, someone leaves the room and you turn to each other, see what everyone's impressions are. If you're really intentional about how you want people to describe you, it will come across in the interview. And also you can weave that into your interview answers and weave those specific words into your interview answers as well. Yeah, I remember when I was training to be CFO that was in place at the time, would often stop me on the way to a meeting. And we'll talk a bit about this in the pre-meeting work because you share similarly. And he would say, before we get there, let's just take a few minutes, think about how you want to show up in this meeting and picture the meeting as if you're watching a movie. How are you sitting? How are you talking? How are you showing up to the audience? And just close your eyes, visualize that. Now let's go into the meeting. At the time, I was quite young. I thought, wow, this is pretty crazy what we're doing here. And then over time, you realize if I premeditate who I want to be, I'll be that person and people will see what I want them to see. And it's the amount of time it takes to go from person A to person B, C, D. It's much shorter than we realize. And one of the key words that you've used a few times, when we're intentional about it and we make those choices, which brings me to the next question, because we're talking about as we go into meetings, and meetings are a spot that can be very challenging for women. You highlight they feel like they struggle speaking up, getting their voice heard and making points powerfully. They're interrupted 50% of the time and 96% of the time that's by men. And so to help them in meetings, you suggest let's do some pre-meeting work before you go in there. So can we take our listeners through that? And then as well, on top of that, when they do get interrupted, what are some techniques that they can use to get their point back across, to finish up their thought? Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, please do me a quick favor. Subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. Okay, so in answer to the first question about how do you prepare for meetings, a few simple things you can do. So the first thing, and everyone should do this preparing for a meeting, is what do I want to achieve from this meeting? Because I think so often we just roll into meetings and then react to them. And it's like, well, why are you going into a meeting if you're not clear what you want to achieve? And maybe that's you need some information, you need a decision, or maybe it's just I want to be seen as credible 
in my role or I want to be seen as ready for the next stage or I want to build that relationship with that senior stakeholder. So be clear, what do I want to achieve? And then secondly, how do I want to be perceived? So this might be your personal leadership brand. You might be applying that in all your meetings or it might be in this particular meeting, you want to be perceived in a particular way. I had a client who she was a consultant and her client regularly challenged her and didn't listen to her, even though she'd hired her for her insight and expertise. And she said, I just want her to recognize me as an expert. So I said, right, you go into your next meeting, just or the word you have in your head is expert. You claim that space of being expert. You're intentional about being the expert. And that's what she did. At one point, she had to remind the woman she was being paid for her expertise, but The woman completely changed, her client completely changed how she responded and she respected her a lot more and even started referring to her as, well, you're the expert, so I'll listen to you on this. So it's really, really simple when you put it in action. It's ridiculous, but I think it's the power of focus, isn't it? I think we just aren't usually focused. So it's that power of focus. And it's really simple. You don't need to believe in anything woo-woo. You just have to choose how do I want to be perceived and show up that way. I have other clients where they're a group of women and they're in a startup and everyone at the level, the most senior level is male. They attend these meetings as well, the women, and they notice that the men were presenting everything they did as a strategy and everyone was going, wow, that's amazing, so strategic. Whilst the women were talking about their workload and their plans and what they'd done, and weren't getting much credit for it. And they all sat there and went, hmm, has anyone noticed that men use the word strategy an awful lot? Try doing that. And so they started referring to everything they did as a strategy, and they got this incredible feedback from then on, because they tapped into this word that everyone valued within the organization. So it can be really simple. So think about either your personal leadership brand words, or just for this meeting, particularly, how do you want to be perceived? And then the final thing you can do, go in more powerfully, is something I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, is the idea of power posing. So uh, Dr. Amy Cuddy popularized this idea. You hold a powerful pose for two minutes. It makes you feel more powerful for the rest of the day. I have clients that get called into meetings and quickly go into the bathroom before they need to go in so that they can power pose. I personally also love a bit of a power song. So I used to go into pitches when I was a fundraiser for millions of pounds. And at the time, again, I'm dating myself, but Eye of the Tiger from Rocky was my favorite song. But later on, I was a managing director of a recruitment company. I was made managing director after one year in recruitment. And these very people that had trained me, I was now leading. And they were amazing. So they weren't challenging at all, but I really needed to feel more powerful. And on my half hour walk to work, I would listen to basically girl rap songs. And I would go in pretty much dancing my way in, feeling completely in control and powerful. And it really changed how I felt and how I showed up. So those are the three things you can do. What do you want to achieve? How do you want to be perceived? And what can you do using your body language or music to go in feeling more powerful? That's wonderful. And we look at it. A lot of people use the idea of the law of attraction. And I I have a few friends and I, we always say, hey, we should replace the law of attraction with the law of action. And part of what you're doing with saying, here's how I want to show up. This is the word. This is what I want to be seen as. And then you're layering on it. Well, if I want to be seen that way, this is how I need to behave. And so it's almost combining 
the law of attraction with the law of action. I'll change my behavior to be known for X, and X is what I want to attract. And then they're attracting it. That is wonderful. One thing that if you're going into the meetings, one of your challenges is anxiety or fear. One thing we can add to our listeners is to do some simple breath work, box breathing, breathe in for four or five seconds, pause for four or five seconds, breathe out for four or five seconds, pause for four or five seconds just calms down your nervous system and then you go in and and it helps shed that anxiety. I love the idea of combining that with the Superman pose, which I think is an example they've shown actually does increase your testosterone levels. So it's not just the mental, it physiologically does changes in your body, which is absolutely incredible. And so we're in the meeting, we did our pre-work, We're ready to go, and someone interrupts us. How do we get to finish our thought so that we don't always get cut off? Okay. So I'd like to cover first what we can do, and secondly, what other people can do, because often it's easier if somebody else helps out in that situation. So when we're interrupted, you have to choose how assertive you want to be in that situation. And I would say there's a cultural divide here, because I think And I don't know about Canada, but I know in America, certainly the women are more assertive in the workplace than in the UK. So in the UK, we sit there and we decide, well, how senior is this person? And how can we get the floor back without creating tension that distracts from the point we're trying to make? So sometimes it's a question, if you want to keep talking, it's a, a case of saying, I've nearly finished, or just let me finish my point. Uh, If you want to be more assertive, I'm still talking. For many of us, what I see a lot of women doing in the workplace is basically we let the other person talk. We're often a more dominant voice. But then afterwards, we jump in and we say, we might want to say, thanks for that, going back to my point. Or if they've made a point because they're talking on your behalf, and actually, it's not the point you wanted to make, you can go, that was an interesting point, John. But the point I was trying to make, or the point I was making was this. So something that basically reclaims the floor, what you don't want to do once someone's interrupted and you've let them speak is just let it go because you will never get that moment back. So imagine it as a microphone and someone's grabbed the microphone off you. They've made their point. You want to get the microphone back, reclaim it, basically. But what's much easier if, if someone does that for you? And this is one of the many ways in which men can support women in the workplace in that you can say, I really found the point Carla was making interesting. I'd like to hear more about that. Or I think Carla was interrupted. Do you want to continue? Yeah. So in that situation, John, Carla was sharing a thought there. I'd, I'd like to hear her finish that. Yeah. So men can be fantastic allies in passing the mic back. What we don't need you to do is say, I think the point Carla was trying to make is and make our point for us, which I think sometimes happens when people are trying to be helpful. There's a phrase for that heap eating um, where we make a point, no one pays much attention and a man makes a point, everyone thinks it's the best idea anyone's ever heard. It happens, I mean, I did a poll on LinkedIn, I think it happened to about 70% of the women um, that answered the poll within the last six months. So it happens regularly. And again, anyone in the room can say, I really enjoyed Carla's thoughts on that, or I really enjoyed Sarah's thoughts on that. Can we hear more? 
from her. Or I like how you've built on Sarah's point there. Sarah, do you have anything else to add to that? So just making sure that credit is going where it's due. And women can amplify each other. So I don't know if you've heard of this strategy of amplification, but in Obama's presidential room, there were obviously lots of very, very intelligent men and women, but the women notice, because the authority and the influence gap is real, that their contributions were not being taken as seriously, were not valued as much, that they were being interrupted, repeated, etc. And so they agreed to amplify each other and came up with a strategy of amplification, which was exactly that, passing the mic back to that person, championing women within the room, saying that was a good point, making sure they got the credit for what they had done. Um, And so I always really encourage women to do that for each other. But men can absolutely do that too. And unfortunate but true, you are more likely to be listened to than we are. So men can be fantastic allies. In fact, gender equality initiatives are much, much more successful if men are engaged in them. There is very little point in just empowering women if nothing changes in the workplace around them. Yeah. The interesting part that I learn the more that I dive into diversity and inclusion training is generally the only people that can make the systemic lasting change are the people in power, which tends to be the straight, cis, heterosexual, white guys. Like It's on us to make the changes to make sure that everyone's voice is heard. And I just wrote down heap-eating because that's the first time I've heard that one. And it's I know I've seen it in action. And so heap eating is on my list now. That was a wonderful addition to my vocabulary. Thank you. It will be in the uh, thread when we write about this uh, show and how people can improve. The fun part is that's language. It's phrasing and it's something that will stick in your head. And one of the important points you talk about, and this is the one that I think should be very or could be easier for young women to fix is what are those word choices? What is that language that we use? And a lot of it can be qualifiers that detract from our leadership brand. And so what should we be looking for? And what do we want to change it to? Great question. So I call it caveating. It's also called qualifying statements. But essentially, often when women are making a point in meetings, particularly a challenging point, they will start with a sentence that doesn't serve them at all. So common ones might be, I'm not sure, but I might be wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong. I might be taking us out off on a tangent here. There's all sorts of ones out there. And we also do ones at the end as well. So at the end, we'll make a really good point. And then we'll say, does that make sense? As if it might not have made sense. And the interesting thing is we're saying I'm not sure, but when we are sure, we're saying I might be wrong when we know we're not wrong. Those phrases are essentially saying you probably don't need to listen to me on this. I'm not even sure that I'm right. Those phrases are saying exactly the opposite of what we want to achieve. So why do we do that? There's a number of reasons that we do that. Firstly, we might well have seen other women do it in the workplace and recognize, okay, so that's how people start their contributions. 
Secondly, it becomes habitual. So we might start it for a challenging point and then we just get used to saying it. But also the main reason we do it is because it has never been safe for a woman to just speak their mind unedited in the workplace without consequence in a way that it is for men. And there's a really interesting book called Patriarchy Stress Disorder. And I don't know if you've come across this idea, but it's that not only have we all got our own individual experiences of not feeling safe speaking up in the workplace, and that happens for everybody. We've all had those times, particularly earlier in our career, we've had an idea and we've been really shot down. And our inner critic goes, well, it's not safe to have ideas, definitely not safe to say them in rooms with senior people. That's what happens to you. Don't do that again. So if you've got an inner critic, it keeps you safe. But patriarchy stress disorder basically says what's happening collectively to women affects our nervous system as well. So when we see women's rights being challenged in other countries, for example, we recognize actually our rights are fragile. They're tenuous. They're kind of gifted to us and people can take them away at any point so we don't feel safe. We also, this comes through genetically as well. So it's absolutely fascinating. They did experiments on mice, not that I'm a fan of experimenting on animals, but they did experiments on mice where inflicted some kind of pain on mice where the smell of cherry blossom, or I think it was the smell of cherry at the same time. And three generations later, so mice that had never been exposed to any form of pain, they were terrified of the smell of cherry because it had just been passed down genetically. So the book, Patriarchy Stress Disorder, basically says it has never felt safe as a woman to speak up unedited. And we do know that we are judged more harshly. We do know that men are proved are competent unless proven otherwise. Women in many, many rooms assumed incompetent unless they prove otherwise. And there's a few books out there that are brilliant at evidencing that. And it's a very depressing read. But the other thing that we know happens is that people confuse confidence and competence. So men are generally a lot more confident. And then people assume, therefore, that they're competent. And there's a great book on that. I'm trying to think what it's called. It's something like, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? Written by a man and a fantastic ally because a woman could never write that book. Can you imagine the reaction if a woman wrote that? Written by a man, fantastic ally. Um, but it does say we're valuing the wrong things in leadership. We're valuing confidence when we should actually be looking at competence. We're looking at all of the wrong things in leadership. So, sorry, that was a very long-winded answer to what are the things that we are doing that are not serving us in meetings. So what we need to do is to replace those phrases with phrases that achieve the same thing, but are empowering rather than disempowering, because we still probably want to soften our more challenging points. Um, And again, there might be cultural differences here between different countries, but certainly a woman cannot speak as directly as a man can in a meeting and get the same response. And studies show we need to be likable in order to succeed in the workplace, which is just really deeply annoying, but is something that is evidence. (laughs) So we want to be able to introduce our point. So it might be a case of saying, there's something I'd like to contribute here. It might be a case of using questions. Could we think about this in another way? Have we explored all the options? Are there any avenues we haven't gone down? Do we, I'm just, I've lost them off the top of my head, but there are many, I always say, you can always ask a question rather than making a statement. By asking a question, it's really hard to get shot down, but you can strategically 
shape and shift the conversation and the narrative of a meeting. There are many things that you can do. And then at the end, if you're someone who says, does that make sense? Just stop saying, does that make sense? Because it does make sense. And if it doesn't, someone will tell you or ask a question. And if they're asking a question, it doesn't mean they didn't make sense. They just need the information in a different way for their thinking style, or they need more information. Instead, make your final point and then decide what you're going to say at the end. So it might be to say, I'm happy to take questions on that. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Um, another thing a lot of women do is we make our point and then we start doubting ourselves and then we mumble on and kind of fade away into nothing. And I encourage people to end strong. It happens a lot. So imagine a full stop, make your point, imagine a full stop, and then use more powerful body language to indicate that you've finished. Because many of us shrug and go, that's all from us. Again, diminishing what we've contributed to the meeting. So just sit back or bring your hands together or sit forward, whatever you want to do to indicate, okay, I'm finished now. You can all join in without feeling like, oh, I need to pass the spotlight onto someone else as quickly as possible because I feel really uncomfortable with it, which is what a lot of people experience. And can you even end with something like that? I notice I've been doing that in social audio media rooms. When I'm finished a point, I'll either just stop and shut off my mic, which is like, a, to your point, a hard stop. Or sometimes I'll just say, whoever's chairing that meeting, back to you, Steve, and just shut off my mic instead of continuing the ramble. But I'm not sure in a meeting I'd want to say back to you, Chris, and shut myself down. Do that hard stop and get comfortable with it. Exactly. Or just come up with one phrase you do feel comfortable with, which might be, well, I try not to make it too close, like any questions, but it could be value any feedback on that. I'll be really interested to hear people's response to that. Anything that says, okay, I'm now welcoming conversation on this. And then people know to expect that from you. And they also not know not to interrupt you halfway through because you haven't sat back and said your finishing phrase. And something that really intrigued me there was you said that men can be confident without any qualifiers. Women need to have some. And I know somewhere in my leadership journey, for some reason, I learned that I speak with 100% confidence, even when I'm only 60% confident. And I've had the conversations with my teams to say, hey, I, I've learned this about myself. So always do ask me questions and challenge it. Why is it okay for men to just have that confidence level? And you're saying the research has shown that if women behave in that same way, it doesn't actually get them ahead. Because it's threatening. Because we have this idea in society of what a woman should be like, and a woman should not be direct. Um, but we would be called demanding. Uh, there are a whole list of words that are applied to strong, direct women that are not applied to men. So we might be called demanding, a diva. Um, there are worse words that I don't like to repeat. Um, but there is a whole load of language that is only applied to strong women because it's a challenge. Um, and again, this isn't any one individual. It's not a flaw from any one individual. It's that society teaches us to value different things in men and women. And that absolutely needs to change. And I think we can all think of women who are strong and empathetic. So Jacinda Ardern, for example, in New Zealand, she's amazing because she leads in her way, but she also doesn't take any crap from anyone. And I think it's finding that way. I think we can be 
I think we can be confident, but what I don't think we can, I don't think women have the luxury with gender bias as it stands to just say what we think and not have any consequences from that. And I think men, you don't have to go through that filtering process in the same way. In fact, that act as if you're 100% confident when you're only 60% confident. Many, many women would consider that to be inauthentic. So it's really interesting. We would consider that to be faking it till you make it. And we'd be worried that we will be found out. Yeah, which is why I have imposter feelings horribly all the time. Well, you would do, wouldn't you? If you feel like you've got to pretend that you know more than you do, or you're more sure than you are, that is going to lead to imposter feelings, isn't it? So I can't say that I would much rather, I said, I'm 60% sure of this. You know, there's room for error. But on based on the knowledge I have at the moment, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. We'll course correct if we need to. I do think imposter feelings come from the fact we think we should know all the answers when actually sometimes we just don't. And that's okay as leaders to not know all the answers. Yeah, it's interesting. The I had another guest on who we were talking about a similar topic. And she, in some of the research she'd done, it indicated that men and women, which ties to what we're talking about right now, actually, they have very similar levels of imposter feelings. Men have a habit more of just saying, okay, well, the imposter feeling's there. I'm just pushing through it and I'm going to act as if that imposter feeling's not there, which is a a bit of an interesting contrast. And the acting as if I'm going to be confident even when I'm not confident ties to that idea that you'd already touched on, which is a great transition jumping point to gravitas. And some of gravitas can take purposeful, concerted, intentional effort over time. As an example, I've noticed, I'll say in my workplace or even with me personally, as I've extended my time as a leader, I've slowed down my speech pattern. It's a calmer tone. I speak from a deeper place in my body, so the the tone that comes out is a deeper voice. And I've seen people who seem like they're going from a character in like an anime show to Bat Dad. And for people who don't know, Bat Dad talks like this. And I'm thinking, well, does no one notice that that guy didn't talk like that a year ago or two years ago? Like it's just deeper and deeper every single year. And so you talk about this idea that if we want to have gravitas, there are certain things that we can do in our behaviors and how we show up. And you have a framework for here's the steps you can take to increase it. What are some of those that you can share with the listeners that can help them show up as that leader? I think the first thing I want to say is I distinguish between authority and gravitas. So for me, authority is about, okay, I'm owning the authority that comes with this role. I'm acting as a leader at this level. And for me, gravitas, and we say it differently in our different countries, um, is about being able to be solemn and serious and deliver a very serious message so that it's heard. So that might be used, for, for example, in performance management or in holding someone accountable for something. Or you're a young woman in a room full of 60-year-old men and you need to be seen as having more gravitas. So for me, I do not think that you have to have gravitas all the time. So I have clients who 
come to me and say, I'm not being taken seriously as a leader because I'm being told I'm too nice, I'm too smiley, I'm too happy. And I call bullshit on that, basically. You can be smiley and happy as long as you can also make the tough decisions and have the tough conversations in an appropriate tone. So for me, it's about the tone. Um, And there are numerous steps you can take, and you've alluded to some of them. You can slow down the pace of what you're saying. So you can use more pauses. You can make your point and pause. So really own that space. We sometimes worry as women that if we pause, someone will jump in. But actually, if you do it in a way that owns that pause, um, and you don't change your body language so people know you're about that you're still continuing to speak, that can be really helpful. And also your tone of voice. So we often speak from the just our throat, basically, quite high pitched. Actually, we want to speak from our gut and our diaphragm. Um, and so learning how to do that, and I find I must do this with my podcast. I notice sometimes, actually, I can lower my voice and it has a greater sense of authority. So if you watch newsreaders delivering bad news, they'll slow down and they'll lower their tone of voice. Now, what's really interesting, my thoughts are evolving on this because I run a course called Be Bolder, which is a confidence course for women. And women love it and find it really empowering. But one of them came back to me and said, there was one thing that really didn't sit well with me. And that was the idea that my voice has to be lower for me to be taken seriously as a leader. Why aren't we challenging that and saying, it doesn't matter how high pitched my voice is, what I have to say is still credible. And actually, I think she makes a really valid point there. And I'm not talking about trying to be like someone else. So I do think if you're delivering something serious, the person you're going into a meeting with needs to know that that's serious. And that's about energetically becoming more solemn and your tone of voice, slowing down, taking pauses, much more use of silence rather than filling the silence is really, really important. However, she is right that to be taken seriously, we shouldn't have to sound more like men. So that's something I'm still thinking about at the moment, actually, is should I be, should I keep saying that or should I be challenging that and saying, actually, women's voices are higher. I mean, when you're high pitched and you're struggling to take a breath, it's very hard to take you seriously. But equally, it's very hard to take someone seriously if they're super slow, so slow that they're boring. So I wonder if that's something that we do need to actually challenge and go, is that an assumption we're making? Because our picture of gravitas and authority is a man. I don't know. What do you think? I think your course is likely wonderful and you don't need to change it on the feedback of one person if you've had so many people through the course. And where I would challenge her is there are so many societal constructs that we should absolutely challenge. And was I taken or am I taken more seriously as a man when I modulated my tone and modulated the speed of my speech? And without a doubt, 100%. So I I don't think it's necessarily about women speaking like a man, per se. Rather, even women or men, when we slow down, And when we do deepen, there's a certain level of, for example, when I'm on the podcast, when you will hear my voice go up, and probably you'll notice for yourself, is when we get excited. And when we're talking about something exciting, because then you're out of that place of mind where you're being serious, where you're being thoughtful and purposeful, and you're just letting it go. 
And so I think to some extent, when we hear someone speaking that way, our brain may say, oh, they're not in that deep spot. They're not speaking from that deep core. They're just being fanciful. Because I know that's when I lose the ability to stay below a certain decibel or what have you. So absolutely, we should be taking seriously however our voice is. But if we go down the list, everything you and I are talking about today, like we should be taken seriously if we use qualifier statements. We should be taken seriously if we don't do our pre-meeting work. But the reason we're giving these tools to people is society has trained people to think a certain way. So we could tell someone, hey, you should take me or Carla seriously, even if we're high-pitched. But if you go back to your experience with the mice, we've been trained for thousands of years that if someone speaks slower and deeper, like a shaman, that's the person we're going to listen to and trust. Almost any time you hear a spiritual leader in almost any culture now that I think about it that I've ever heard, long pauses, slow speech, deep, and you look at them and say, that person is so wise. And that seems cross-culture. So I think we as humans have been trained just to zone in on that voice. And so it would be great if we didn't need it. But I think that would take thousands of years to, to change. And you and I, we wouldn't be able to influence it. So that, that was a really long answer to that. And to the point, anything we suggest, generally, there will be a small subset of the population that says, well, I don't think I should have to do that. I think all of society should change instead. It's true. For me, I think it's really useful to have that reflection back and, and for me to question myself and just double check. Am I exacerbating a situation here or am I helping to create, well, to empower people to lead their way so that we've got a different variety of what leadership looks like? going on here. So yeah, it's interesting. And it's just the the tone, like the, the deepness of voice, which genetically favors men where it's like, oh, I can, I can see the point she's making there. But I like your reframe. Well, there's two different things, right? There's when I'm talking to you now, I'm not modifying my voice. I'm simply speaking from, to your point, a deeper diaphragmatic breathing, diaphragmatic speaking versus throat speaking. And so it comes out deeper. There's that. And then there's artificially making my voice deeper by changing. Now, we're not suggesting people start modifying their voice. We're simply saying it comes across stronger when you speak from a deeper part of yourself. That to me is less faking. It's less inauthentic. We're simply saying if you speak from a deeper part of yourself, it will come out differently and be interpreted differently. It's still your voice. It's just from a different spot. If we say, hey, be bad dad and play with your throat, like, because that's not real. That can't be permanent. Whereas when you speak from a deeper spot, that can be permanent. It's just teaching you to speak from a different part of your own, but it's still your voice. You're not faking something. I think that's a really important differentiator given what we talked about earlier with the faking till you make it. It's still your authentic voice. It's just you hadn't found it yet. Exactly. It's extending your range, isn't it? Yes. And using your full range rather than sticking to a limited range. So yes, I agree. So now we've worked on our mindset. We've shown up as a leader. Now you want to teach people how to influence people. 
And you have a number, you have a six-step model for influencing anyone at any level. What are two or three things that our listeners should be zoning in on to increase their influence at work? What are a couple of the ones that you really want to hammer home for them? So I think the first one is if you need to influence someone, you need to be able to put yourself in their shoes. And it helps if you've done the groundwork of building a relationship with them, because that will make it easier. But if not, you could be doing some research to understand more about their situation. But often we think influencing is other people round to our point of view. And that's not how I see influencing. I see influencing as going in with your perspective, recognizing there are other perspectives and finding the way forward that's most effective for everyone. And so, because what happens at the moment is we think we're right, they think they're right, we're making the other person wrong and it's really hard to make any progress and that gets ingrained in tensions between individuals and departments. Whilst instead, if you can recognize, okay, so where does this sit in their priorities? What concerns might they have about it? What else is keeping them up at night? What are their stakeholders going to think about this? How does it impact them? If you think about those things, which are essentially their objections, if we think about it in a sales conversation, we would call those objections or concerns. If you don't know someone's objections, then you can't overcome them. You can't discuss them. So I really encourage people, if you're trying to influence someone, start with putting yourself in their shoes. So rather than making them like the alien other who's got it wrong and just needs to see the world how you see it, instead, put yourself in their shoes. And then I think the other key thing you can do, and this is really useful when influencing senior stakeholders, um, is think about the language that they use and what's important to them. So if you've got a senior stakeholder you really want to influence, I encourage you to get really curious. Be Think of yourself as a researcher or a spy and gather information on that person. So how do they communicate? Are they direct and to the point or do they love to tell a story? Are they someone who really wants to chat about your dog or your partner or your kids for 10 minutes before getting into the detail? Or are they someone that just wants you to get to the point? Do they want graphs, pictures, data, proposals? All of these things, if you get them wrong, can get in the way of them hearing your message. So this isn't part of the six-step model. It's it's a separate point. But the more you can speak the language of senior stakeholders, the more what you're saying to them is easier for them to take on board and for them to think, oh, that could be something I would have thought of myself because it's landing in my language. They're using phrases that I've used before. They're communicating in a way that I don't have to put any brain power into translating. It makes sense to me. We are all programmed, and this is one of the reasons why men get promoted more than women, we're all programmed to be drawn to and respect people that remind us of ourselves. And so you can sort of mimic that by using their language. So it's not about being inauthentic, it's about being able to flex your language and your approach based on the person you're trying to influence. Yeah, that jumped out at me. I remember there was a time where I'd I'd be at a leadership table And I would notice all the guys around me would all use, they would all speak the same way. They would all use the same words, the same phrases. And I remember always thinking to myself, are are these the Stepford partners? Have they all gone to the same school of programming? Because it, it sounds like I'm hearing the exact same person six times. And maybe there was a level to what you're saying in that they realized, well, if I want 
leader A to to like me and promote me, I'll speak and talk and mimic the speech patterns, the behaviors, the language choices of leader A. And then they became leader B and leader person C was like, well, if I want to be A and B, I'll start speaking like A and B. And all of a sudden I'm sitting at the table thinking, my gosh, am I number seven? Did I mimic these people? Are we all the same? So it, I absolutely hear you on that one. And so a couple things that you talked about in there, because you touched on something that you later talk about as cognitive flexibility. Can you talk to the listeners about what that is and how we can develop that? Absolutely. So the idea of cognitive flexibility is, and it's a fantastic leadership trait or skill to have, is to go into any given situation. And rather than going in like most of us do with a, this is my perspective, this is what's right, but I'm willing maybe to listen to other people. Cognitive flexibility is the skill of being able to go in and before coming to your own conclusion, listen to and really hear the other perspectives. And so it's the same as this leader speaks last idea from Simon Sinek, basically, that instead of going in knowing you're right, and then you get that group think of people agreeing with you. Instead, you recognize that the way you're looking at a situation is one perspective. And we all look at things through our perspective, our lens of our experience. We know that there's confirmation bias. So we know that our brain decides on something and then only really sees the evidence that supports it and chooses to ignore the evidence that doesn't support it. And that can lead to not being open to different perspectives at all. So just recognizing this is my perspective. There are other perspectives, valuing and asking to hear other perspectives, a brilliant skill to have. And particularly when it comes to influencing, and it's another way of saying putting yourself in someone else's shoes. We have an exercise where if you're struggling to influence someone, I would get you to stand in one position and think, right, how do I feel about this person and this situation? And write that down. And then I would encourage you to go to another part of the room or to sit in a different chair and pretend you're stepping into the shoes of the other person and write down, how do I as the other person feel about this situation, about that other person? And then the third way of doing it is to then enter a neutral space, or you can helicopter up and imagine you're looking down. Um, or imagine you're a coach analyzing the situation and say, what am I seeing playing out here? What am I seeing with this neutral perspective? And it can be really helpful. Often people struggle to put themselves in the other person's perspective, which shows we're, we're really stuck in needing to be right. And I often say to people when I'm coaching them, so do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And I think this refers to relationships a lot as well. You can either sit in that place of I'm right and they're wrong, or you can sit in a place of having a discussion where maybe no one's right wrong and there's different ways of looking at things. So that's just a, a, a really simple exercise. But influencing generally goes better if instead of thinking these are the facts and I'm right and I just need to convince someone else of them, you recognize this is my perspective. There are other equally valid perspectives and I'd be really interested to hear them, to take them on board and then see how that refines my thinking. The other interesting aspect of that is it's such an important part of increasing our empathy and emotional intelligence is that ability to put ourselves into the shoes and others, which may, and I may be mistaken on this, my recollection is women tend to be better at this than men. 
in being able to take on other people's perspectives and having that level of empathy? So my understanding is that, yeah, women are more empathetic. Now, whether that's genetic or whether society has programmed us to be more empathetic, I'm not sure. I suspect it's more that we are encouraged to think of the needs of others. We're encouraged. We celebrate women putting others first. You look at the Mother's Day cards and they're all about sacrifice and, and celebrating that. Shonda Rhimes made that point on an Oprah interview of why do Mother's Day cards celebrate all the sacrifices women have made when that is rarely what comes up on Father's Day cards. So I think there's some of that society, but certainly it's recognized that a feminine leadership trait is empathy. And it's something that I think more and more organizations are valuing now. It was previously seen as almost as weakness. Whilst I think when we went through a lot of change with the pandemic, it's now been recognized that bringing your team with you and supporting your team and that mental health side of things is absolutely vital for leaders today. Yeah, absolutely. And if you weren't doing that over COVID, it's just interesting what our teams went through, what people went through. The isolation amplified everybody's mental health challenges. People who didn't even have mental health challenges that they were aware of all of a sudden had anxiety, had depression. People who had it blown up. And so not having those conversations and not being aware of that would have been a very challenging work situation to work through. That would have been uh, very hard for a lot of people. The, The other thing that you talked about in there was this idea of thinking like a leader. So if someone wants to think like a leader, and, and, and this will be the last question on the, on the book, Carla, and then people can, can go and read this uh, masterpiece, and I, I'm loving the conversation I'm having with you on it, is what are some of the things we want people to think about in, when they want to think like a leader? So in the book, I suggest a number of, of mindset shifts that I made and that I've seen other people make. But my favorite one is this idea of radical responsibility. So I believe that once you're a manager and a leader, there are, there are many fantastic things because you have the ability to create change. What I don't think you get to be anymore is to be a victim, to sit in that victim space and complain because you do generally have the ability to influence and create change. And what I experienced earlier on in my career, I was very frustrated. My first chief exec called me a constructive agitator in that I wanted to create change, but always in a really positive way. But I could always see how things could be better. And when I got to the point where I was leading teams, I was like, this is brilliant because I can help improve things. So I was leading a team and we were all having issues with one department and everyone would just sit and complain about it, myself and all my peers and everyone. And I was like, well, why don't we just get together, decide what we need, and then I'll go and talk to that department. We'll hear what they need. Basically put them through the six-step model, although I didn't know it was my six-step model at that point. And that's what I did. I gathered that information. We sorted the problems, got it done. Again, I was pitching for some a piece of work, like a big charity partnership, and they needed a five-year organizational strategy. And I was about four levels below the chief exec, um, and we didn't have a five-year strategy. So I didn't sit there and go, oh, well, we can't go for that money. I went to the chief exec and the directors and said, we need a five-year strategy. And they went, well, we haven't got time to focus on that. I said, well, use me. I'll coordinate it. I've never done this before, but I'll learn and I'll bring us all together. And I made it happen. And we won two and a half million pounds. And it is essentially, rather than complaining about problems, you find ways of solving them. And sometimes that means taking on the work. 
But sometimes it's just being the person who raises the question or gets something on the agenda or gets it on the agenda of senior people. And that has got me promoted so many times. And I have never done it to get promoted. I've never sat there and gone, oh, I know what I'd do to get promoted. I've sat there and gone, what's stopping me from being able to do my job well? What's making it hard for my team to deliver? What can I do or initiate or drive proactively to make that better? And I ended up uh, managing director of a recruitment company, and I interviewed a lot of people. And I really noticed that those that demonstrated this radical responsibility, when they came in, within 20 minutes of setting in front of me, I was like, I could send them anywhere and they would get the job. These are the superstars. And it's that way of thinking. You could tell from their CV, you talk to them about problem solving, and they went into action mode rather than into victim stuck mode. So for me, that's the main thing you can do as a leader is really think about where am I not taking radical responsibility? So where am I complaining? Where am I feeling stuck? And how could I think about that differently? What Maybe I've got more power and influence in this situation than I think I have. Where could I start to create the change that needs to happen? One of my favorite mindset, whether it's radical responsibility, extreme ownership, I often phrase it as own your shit. It's just taking charge of your life in a lot of the things we've talked about today fall under that bucket. We can let things be the way they are, or we can make these little tweaks and take responsibility for who we want to be, how we want to show up, and make these shifts to how we do that. And we'll get further ahead. So that's a great spot to end the formal conversation. Do you have time for a quick final four questions that we throw at our guests? Yes, sure. Uh, what is a book that you've read that's had a significant influence on your life? I think actually it's one I referred to earlier, which is The Authority Gap by Marianne Seagart. Because until then, I was doing this coaching of women and I was thinking, I, I don't know why we need to do this, but it feels like we do. And just having it laid out, the inequity in the workplace. And the thing I haven't referred to in this interview that I really try and make sure I do in every interview is Women and men, obviously, we're not homogenous groups. And obviously, the world also isn't binary, but the, all the research out there is men and women. However, as a white woman, I have not faced barriers that a woman of color might have faced or someone who is neurodiverse or someone who is not able-bodied. So I think it's really important to recognize that there are additional challenges that others face. And her book does that very well. Um, but it, it's a great storytelling book about the various challenges that women face in the workplace. Uh, and I think every man should read it. I definitely think every male chief exec should read it. So that's my top book, apart from mine, of course. <laughs> Love it. And what are you currently reading right now? I am currently reading a book called Work Joy by Beth Stallwood. And it's all about moving from work gloom to work joy. Uh, I had her on my podcast. And I recently did an episode on boundaries based on her book. So really recommend that book. Uh, how, again, it links to that radical responsibility idea of working out what you can do to help you enjoy your job better, even if it's not the perfect job. In the book, is it one word? Yes, one word. Work Joy, Toolkit for a Better Working Life by Beth Stallwood. It's just come out this 
last week. It should be out in Canada as well. It's come out in the UK, but I think it's come out globally. Okay, I will check this one out. I always like new books. What is something that you've bought in the, let's say, last year for under $1,000 that you think to yourself now, wow, I really wish I'd bought that sooner? Oh, good question. It's not very exciting. It's a tumble dryer. I've never had a tumble dryer before, and I've moved to the north of England where it's very cold and wet. Uh, and I have a five-year-old child who gets all his clothes dirty all the time. And the tumble dryer has saved lots of time. It is expensive to run, but I'm like, do you know what? Life is short. I'm going to put it in the tumble dryer. So yeah, that's what I bought. <laughs> so how do yours work relative to a tumble dryer then? So we generally have washing machines. And then some people have a mixture of washing machines and tumble dryers. And some people have separate ones. I got a separate one for the first time. And now my clothes are dry in like 45 minutes. Uh, and it has saved me lots of time. But I've got friends in New York who don't even have a washing machine. They take everything to the laundromat, which is crazy to me, having a house without a washing machine. Well, yeah, New York's closer to Europe than in a lot of the build, the older buildings. So a, a place like Vancouver, we, we do have some of those, but there are very few where we, you know, we call them like a four-story walk-up and all the laundry's down in the basement or you have to go to a laundromat because none of the units have washing machines or dryers. But most people in Vancouver do have uh, both the separate washer and tumble dryer. So, for, But I remember we were just over in uh, Amsterdam and we noticed that they didn't have them either. They had those, the one that kind of did both, but it doesn't quite get as dry as a standalone tumble dryer. Oh, that's a great answer. I love that. That's our first time. Oh, it's how unexciting my life is. <laughs> Sorry, very boring answer. I was on a different podcast and I got asked and, and something, you know, I think my wife wanted me to use her answer. So I used, she, she found these cheese wrappers that are like the waxed paper and they keep your cheese from molding. And she's so happy at finding those that I gave that as my answer. So the last one, because the show is the growth guide, what is one mindset shift habit or behavior change you've made that's had an oversized impact on your life? I made a decision recently, about a year ago, that there was more to life than work. And even though I knew that beforehand, I am very driven and I love my work. And my life has been about my work and my small child and not a lot outside of that. And just recognizing life is short and I can do good, but also work less. And so that's my motto at the moment, do good, but work less. So I moved from near London to the north of England, very near Scotland, into a little village. Uh, the pace of life is very different. When I walk my son to school, I see what we call fells, but big hills with snow on them today. And I took up gardening as well, which turns out I really like. Whilst previously, I thought it was the most boring thing ever. So for me, it's, it's that mindset shift of, yes, work is brilliant and I love my work, but actually there's more to life than work. And that time outside of work replenishes me for work and helps me avoid the burnout that I'm still naturally susceptible to. I still do want to go into fifth gear quite a lot of the time. So it enables me to slow down a bit. Oh, I hear you on that one. That is a wonderful, wonderful answer. The... We've gone deep. We've gone pretty wide in the conversation. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to leave the listeners with? I think, and we did cover it a bit, but I think just recognizing the gender bias in the workplace is alive and well. 
that women experience more self-doubt than men because we're we're experiencing that gender bias and that men are essential for creating that change. And so if a few people listen to this and go, I'm going to go and read one of those books or work out how I can be a better ally, um, then I will feel like this has been successful from my perspective. Love it. And where can our listeners find you, Carla? So you can head over to the social media I'm most active on is LinkedIn. I spend a lot of the time on LinkedIn. So you can find me there. Feel free to connect or follow there. My website is carlamillatraining.com. And that's where you'll find out about my open programs and courses. And obviously the book can be found on Amazon or any good bookshop. Oh, and I have my own podcast, Influence and Impact for Female Leaders. And actually, it's not just for leaders. It's for women in the workplace. And we talk about all sorts of issues that impact women in the workplace. So you're obviously a podcast listener. If you're listening to this, go and give influence and impact a little bit of a listen. Excellent. So we will have all of that in the show notes and all of the ways to connect with you. Thank you very much for being with me on the growth guide today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed my chat. If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide. Every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.